Hello and welcome to the inaugural Mormon Stories podcast. It's an honor to have you with us today. I've been listening uh, quite a bit to the podcasts out there. Listen to Catholic, Catholic Mormon podcasts. I've listened to Latter Day Slant, um, several other podcasts that have nothing to do with Mormon related issues at all. And I felt called to begin a podcast about Mormon stories instead of dealing necessarily with, uh, oh, I've also spent a significant time listening to um, the podcast from thechurchisnottrue.com. And I find all those podcasts fascinating and informative and interesting. Um, I feel called to do something maybe a little bit different. I'm not so much going to be talking about current events or specific issues sort of in isolation. But instead, what I'm interested in doing is um, providing an open forum for all types of Mormons to tell their stories. They can be true believers. They can be Sunstone Mormons. They can be ex-Mormons or post-Mormons. Um, it doesn't matter. I'm just interested in uh, any type of Mormon having an open forum to be able to tell their story and to bring their stories together with people who are interested in listening. Um, you can contact me at mormonstories at gmail.com. That's mormonstories at gmail.com. And um, if you're interested in telling your story, uh, there's some new software out called Skype. And Skype is cool because basically what it lets you do is through voice over IP on the Internet, um, it'll allow you to talk to someone for free with a pretty decent sound quality. And so uh, those of you who want to tell your story, I can bring on the podcast and we can talk and I can record it and publish it as part of the Mormon stories. So if you're um, a Mormon or used to be a Mormon or, or part Mormon and you feel like you have an interesting or compelling story to tell, I'd love to get it on, uh, on this podcast. So without any further ado, I'm going to begin and kick off the first podcast and tell you a little bit about me. Um, the story I'm going to tell you is one about my mission, my mission experience in Guatemala. Uh, I was raised in Texas um, and um, grew up a pretty devout and zealous uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, my parents were divorced at an early age. And so uh, the church sort of raised me in many ways. Uh, not completely, because my parents also did a very good job raising me, but um, I definitely clung to the church for support and guidance when things were rocky with my family. Uh, after a year at BYU, I received a mission call uh, to serve in, the, in Guatemala in the late 80s. And... Uh, to be honest, I didn't know where Guatemala was and my dad wasn't super excited about me going, but, uh, my parents were supportive and in late 1988, uh, I entered the mission field. Well, uh, the story got interesting a few months into my mission because, um, a few of the companionships uh, in my mission started having, uh, what seemed to be incredible success in the mission field. 
There were companionships, baptizing between 30 and 40 people a month. Um, these were astonishing numbers to us. Uh, and we all kind of wondered how they were doing it. Um, but these elders, sure enough, were, were baptizing up to 30 or 40 a month. Um, within a month or two, these uh, particular missionaries were made zone leaders over a particular zone. And um, within a very short amount of time, uh, this zone was baptizing up upwards of uh, 120 people per month with only four or five companionships. So imagine that, eight to ten missionaries baptizing uh, over 120 people a month. Um, this was astounding. And, you know, very early on, you know, missionaries started talking and wondering how, you know, two missionaries or a zone of missionaries could baptize so many people. So word slowly got out that what these elders would do uh, would be to go to a soccer field and start playing soccer um, in a sort of impoverished uh, part of Guatemala. And they'd play soccer there for, you know, an hour. And then they'd say to the kids, hey, you know, let's go back to the church. A lot of these kids would be eight, nine, ten years old. Some of them, uh, turns out, were even seven years old. Um, but the missionaries would say, hey, you know, let's go back to the church and cool off. And so the uh, the little boys or girls would follow the missionaries to the church, and they'd put them in white clothes. And without any discussions, without any uh, parental consent, without ever attending church, uh, these young kids would get baptized. 5, 10, 15 kids at a time. You know, when I found out about this practice, it kind of made me sick. So early in my mission, I had an interview with the mission president, and I I didn't want to name the elders by names or tell on them, but I just kind of said to the mission president, you know, president, it feels like um, it's relatively easy to get numerical success on this mission. But, uh, you know, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily leading to conversions, and I'm a little bit concerned about that. And the mission president went into great extent to tell me that, you know, Elder, we're, we're planting important seeds that are going to sprout later. We're getting a Book of Mormon in their home. We're giving them the gift of the Holy Ghost. And if they get the gift of the Holy Ghost, even if they fall inactive, you know, later on in their lives, it'll kick in. And um, we will have planted important seeds that will have sprouted later. So being new and, and having, you know, obedience and respect for priesthood leaders heavily emphasized, um, I kind of forgot about it. And, uh, you know, experienced some good success on my own during my mission. After, uh, after a few months in the mission, I was called to open up a brand new area. Uh, I was called to be branch president. And, um, you know, those are very exciting times. Um, four months after that, I was called to be his own leader. And um, I was able to have relatively good numerical success as a missionary um, without using the tactics that I had heard were going on within the mission. Um, so about a year into my mission, 
you know, these elders who were zone leaders had become assistants to the president. And they spent a great deal of time traveling around the mission, um, teaching other missionaries to do similar things. Um, before you know it, we were the second highest baptizing mission in the world. And uh, the mission president would tell us that, that the Chile Viña del Mar mission was the only mission in the world that uh, had more baptisms than us. We were getting 700 baptisms a month as a mission. Um, and the mission president instituted all sorts of incentives um, to encourage baptisms. So, for example, if you baptize seven baptism, ba baptize seven people in a month, uh, you would get a certificate in zone conference that, that showed the number of baptisms you, you received. If you baptize 10 or more a month, you received uh, Janice Cap Perry serving with joy, Serviano con gozo, cassette tape, um, for the first time you exceeded that 10. Also, any companionship in the mission uh, that baptized 10 or more uh, received um, an invitation to a party um, for that month. So all the companionships with 10 or more baptisms would go to this party where they could play soccer and they could play basketball and they could play tennis and there'd be a catered lunch there. Um, and it was a celebration uh, for those who, who got 10 or more baptisms. And um, the highest baptizing zone in the mission um, would get a steak dinner with the mission president that month and he'd take them all to dinner. So, um, as you can tell, sales incentives were um, implemented in a very strong way uh, throughout my mission. So there was lots of incentive, uh, sort of extrinsic incentive to achieve the mission goals. Um, so uh, once I became zone leader, as I mentioned before, we were able to achieve a relatively high amount of success. Um, and then shortly thereafter, the mission president set a goal that every companionship in the mission would have a baptism, um, each month. So he wanted every companionship to baptize at least once every month. And for a couple months, uh, my zones were fine. Uh, but one month in particular, we had done a bunch of baptisms towards the end of the previous month. And for a couple of the companionships, our investigator pool was, was a little bit low. Um, so uh, towards the end of the month, the mission president interviewed me and found out that there were a couple of companionships who were uh, not really set to baptize. So the mission president said, hey, Elder, um, I want you to, you know, he called me up one day and he said, Elder, I want you to ask uh, the two companionships who haven't baptized yet this month to fill their fonts because tomorrow I'm sending the APs out, the assistance of the president. They're going to pick you up and they're going to take you around, um, to, uh, to have help these missionaries achieve success. And they're going to teach you how, uh, you know, top leaders in the mission fulfill their goals. So I, you know, obeyed and I called the companionships and told them to fill their fonts. And I waited the next morning for the, uh, assistance of the president to arrive. So they arrived and, and took me to the first area. And, um, 
uh, we picked up the missionaries who were from that area and we said, take, you know, the, the AP said, well, take us to your investigators. And they basically said, well, we only really have one investigator. And, and the APs went to that investigator, tried to pressure him to get baptized and they wouldn't do it. So the APs started feeling a little bit desperate and they started driving around town and, um, they drove to a poorer part of this Pueblo and found this really dilapidated old shack. And they drove up to the shack and stopped and went into the shack and found this really old lady. She had to have been 70, 75 years old, missing most of her teeth. She was partially blind. Um, and they basically said, Hey, hermana, vamos, vamos a bautizar. Quiere seguir a Jesucristo. You know, you don't want to follow Jesus Christ. You want to get baptized. And this lady had no idea what we were doing. You know, this is a woman who lived in a, a one room shack with a dirt floor and a tin roof. Um, here are these, you know, tall, white, handsome, not me, but you know, the other elders, handsome Mormon missionaries showing up in a, in a minivan. You know, this woman didn't have a telephone, didn't have shoes, let alone a, you know, fancy automobile. Um, so here we were showing up at her door saying, Hey, you want to follow Jesus? And of course she loves Jesus. So she says, absolutely. And before you know it, the elders were, were guiding her down a barranco down this path to the bottom of a river. Um, and she was praying to Mary on the way down. She'd had no discussions. She'd never been to church. Um, and the elders baptized her and the APs were so, uh, where they were so interested in making sure that both companionships got baptisms that they actually baptized her in the river and then said to the elders, Hey elders, can you confirm this lady? We got to go on to our next appointment. So we actually left the lady there uh, alone with the other two missionaries to get confirmed while we went to hop back in the van and uh, go to the next area. So of course I was sick. Um, you know, because the rumors that I heard about the baptismal methods, um, you know, didn't seem, you know, they seemed so shocking to me that I, I just sort of discounted them at least partially, uh, to being just hyperbole or rumor. Um, but here I was experiencing it for the first time in my mission. Um, so we traveled to the next area and almost an identical situation happens. There's a young, you know, man who had only had two discussions. Um, he had four to go. His baptismal date was set for like the next Sunday or the Sunday after. And even though he kind of had back problems, uh, the assistance of the president, um, pressured him. They offered him gum. They offered him ice cream. And finally, you know, they convinced him to get baptized that day and they took him to church and baptized him. Um, on the way home, the missionaries stopped at a telephone and they said, Hey, Let's call the president, you know. So they called the president. And I'll never forget the words that came out of the elder's mouth. He said, Presidente, we've witnessed a miracle today. And he told them that we had um, been able to help both companionships uh, baptize. Now, um, I was a super naive missionary. Super naive about a lot of things. And so my immediate assumption, you know, wasn't that you know, the mission was corrupt. Um, instead, my assumption was that, you know, the mission president just didn't know. And that if I could just let him know, um, uh, then he would fix these problems that were happening. So 
the um, the Zone Leaders Conference um, was a few days from that event, where all the Zone Leaders and all the mission got together to talk to the president, and all the Zone Leaders would have interviews with the president. So I waited, and during my interview with the president, I told him the whole story. And I said, President, you know, when you sent the APs out to my area, um, you know, let me tell you what really happened. And of course, I told him the story thinking that he would be shocked and offended and angry, that he would demote those assistants to the president. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, scour the mission to make sure that none of this was happening anywhere else and, and uh, rid the mission of any impurities or improprieties. Well, much to my surprise, he was angry, but he was angry at me. And the best that I can recall the conversation, he basically yelled at me and said, you know, Elder, do you support your leaders? Are you kicking against the pricks? You know, do you believe in the priesthood? You know, the next time you come to me with complaints or issues like this, I'm going to demote you and you'll no longer be his own president, his own leader. Um, and just basically let me know that it was totally unacceptable and inappropriate for me to be telling him the things that I told him. Uh, you know, a day or two later, even though my companion had more time in, in the area than I did, I was transferred to one of the most remote areas in the mission, um, Uspantan, Quiche, which was five or six hour bus ride to the nearest telephone and about 11 or 12 hour uh, bus ride uh, to the mission home. Uh, so it was clear to me that I was being exiled for sort of exposing or trying to discuss or, you know, raise issue with the practices of the mission. Well, it turns out that uh, a little bit earlier in the mission, I had contracted a pretty severe allergy, uh, allergic reaction to dust mites. Uh, and so um, after discovering this, the president had tried to keep me uh, in relatively clean and safe uh, and sanitary areas. So I spent, you know, at least a few months in the uh, the, the, the district uh, that the temple, the Mormon temple was in, in the Vista Hermosa area, which was the most wealthy uh, area in the, in the country. Um, but this Uspantan Quiche obviously was... Uh, you know, among the most dirty and unsanitary of all the areas in the mission. So uh, within a month, my asthma had flared up considerably uh, to the point where um, I couldn't breathe. I was having to uh, go to the local farmacia and obtain pills and inhalers to keep breathing. Each night I couldn't breathe. And it got so bad that uh, about a month into my time at Uspantan, I called the mission president and said, President, my asthma's flared up. I can't breathe. You know, uh, what do I do? And he sent the message back to me through the uh, APs that I should come to the mission home. So I came to the mission home, uh, took that long bus ride back. And uh, the next day he told me that I was going home. And he sent me on a plane home. And that was about... Um, that was about 20 months into my mission. Uh, so it was a terribly sad ending for me to my mission uh, in Guatemala. And when I got home back in uh, Texas, I seriously considered just ending my mission. And they gave me the option to do that with honor, but I really wanted to finish. So uh, they transferred me 
to the Arizona Tempe mission, and I served my last four months there. Now, I expected the mission president to uh, pass on really bad things about me, to discredit me or to make me look bad. But much to the contrary, he um, he informed the mission president there, Durrell Woolsey, that um, I had been an excellent missionary in Guatemala. They immediately made me a zone leader over, uh, over uh, the Spanish-speaking elders in the Arizona Tempe mission. And I served the last four months of my mission, had a great time, and met a lot of great elders and found out to my to my satisfaction and surprise that not all missions were like this, which was important for me. But um, I was also excited to make sure that my mission president, my new mission president in Salt Lake City more specifically, knew what was going on because I was sure that they weren't going to stand for it. So when Durrell Woolsey, um, who had just been called to be a general authority, uh, called me in, um, I told him the whole story. And his jaw literally dropped, you know, to the floor and he couldn't believe the story I was telling him. So he just said, elder, you know, we've got to let Salt Lake know. Um, thank you so much for telling me and I'm going to call Salt Lake and I'll let you know when I hear back from him. And, uh, so I waited a week or two and didn't hear back from him. So I asked him later, I said, Hey, president, you know, Woolsey, what happened when you told Salt Lake? And he seemed a little bit uncomfortable telling me, but his basic answer that I recall was, well, Elder, um, you know, I told Salt Lake what happened and, and they expressed their regret, but, you know, your president is only a few months from finishing his mission and they didn't want to sort of embarrass him or make a bunch of waves. And so they've just decided to let him finish out his mission. And uh, by that time, I was extremely depressed and demoralized about the church because I started to wonder how far up the corruption went. And uh, I finished out my mission and, um, you know, sort of made it through, had some good experiences, had some great experiences in Arizona, loved my companions and loved the work we did. Um, but it was just, uh, you know, extremely distressing and saddening for the church that I loved, for the church that I had dedicated my life to, for the church that I would committed so much to and believed in, to find out that such things went on, let alone were tolerated. So I spent the next couple years back at BYU pretty depressed about the church, um, pretty angry, and wondering how I was going to let the world know what was happening. I considered very heavily trying to contact, you know, 60 Minutes or 2020, or Time Magazine, and to do some sort of expose. Um, and my uh, experiences were amplified or complicated by the fact that I was at BYU during the Cecilia Farr, David Moulton, you know, sort of the September 6th uh, or October 6th or whatever they were, sort of uh, academic freedom issues that were swirling around BYU at the time, um, you know, in the early 1990s. And I'd seen how some of the more vocal uh, people were treated by the church um, when they were uh, being, you know, sort of disgruntled or outspoken. And I saw that they were excommunicated. So I went to a couple professors of mine who I was very close to, told them the story. And one very special professor in particular uh, 
uh, you know, basically said, you know, what's your purpose? Do you want to marginalize yourself from the community and and uh, incur all sorts of damage by uh, trying to go outside the church and uh, tell the story? Or do you want to try and actually make a difference? And uh, of course, I still felt like I wanted to make a difference in the church, so I told him the latter. And so he said, here's what you do, write a letter. I know Elder Downey jokes personally, and I'll, uh, I'll put a cover letter on your letter, and I'll send it to Elder Oaks, and, you know, that's all I can do for you, but, you know, I think we have a pretty good shot of maybe trying to make a difference here. So uh, I wrote a letter explaining um, my mission experience. I'll be putting it up on my website so you can actually read the letter that I wrote. Um, and, uh, and after a couple professors helped me edit it down and take out a lot of the venom and the anger and the vitriol, um, uh, basically we sent it to Elder Oaks and I don't remember how long it was. It seems like it was another six months or a year. Um, I was uh, doing a internship in Washington, DC. And one night I was at a little get together and one of my roommates came down to the apartment I was in and said, Hey, there's a telephone call for you. So I went upstairs and answered the phone and lo and behold, I heard on the other line, um, this is church headquarters. Could you please hold for Elder Oaks? And of course I was stunned and sure enough, Elder Oaks talked to me and he uh, asked me how I was doing and he apologized on behalf of the church. And he asked, um, you know, if I still had a temple recommend and if I was still worthy and active. And uh, he, um, you know, basically said, I'm really sorry this has happened and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it doesn't happen again. And he promised me to uh, send me a talk that he was working on that um, would be given to future mission presidents addressing the issues that I had brought up when I wrote him the letter. He also promised to give a copy of my letter to every member of the Quorum of the Twelve and First Presidency and also to the Church Missionary Committee. So uh, I was excited and um, I became really hopeful that my letter was actually going to make a difference. And I remember attending um, the mission homecoming or reunion for the Arizona mission and my mission president, uh, former my, my general authority former mission president told me that he had seen my letter and that he felt like it really had made a big difference. Um, so I sort of uh, spent the next several years feeling a lot better about my mission experience um, until I started reading and talking to other missionaries as well. And I found out that in North Carolina, there were cheeseburger baptisms where the elders would go around the black slums and offer cheeseburgers to little boys. I found out that... Uh, a cousin of mine had served a mission in Montana where missionaries had taken names off of gravestones and put them on baptismal records and faked baptisms. I found out that in the Vina del Mar mission in Chile, they used to have beach baptisms where they just have big beach parties and then line up uh, the investigators and baptize them. And years later, I was able to actually work at church headquarters where I saw um, firsthand the activity rates and saw that in Latin America, the activity rates were literally as low as 12 or 15 percent. 
um, in an entire country. Uh, in other words, a tenth of the members that had been baptized over the years were actually active. Um, and and then I read about the baseball baptisms in in the uh, in Great Britain in the early '60s, um, where young British youth weren't allowed to play baseball unless they were baptized first, and so hundreds and thousands of British youth were baptized in hopes that that would lead to uh, a stronger um, church in England. And I saw that the same types of things had happened in Japan with uh, English language teaching programs. And I started to really feel uncomfortable every time in general conference, the leaders seemed to brag about 12 million, 11 million, you know, all the millions of baptisms. I wondered, you know, how many actual members there were. And I wondered why the activity rates were guarded so carefully. So, um, um, this was sort of all driven home to me last year as I was working um, for a technology company. And as I uh, participated on some chat rooms, uh, it was rumored that uh, when Elder Holland went to Chile, he had closed down over 20 stakes while he was in Chile. Closed 20 stakes, shut them down because the church was imploding under its own weight. They had expanded wards and stakes based on baptisms, uh, but the activity rates weren't there, and the critical mass of membership wasn't there to provide the youth programs that were strong enough to keep the youth active, the quorums to keep the, the men active, the relief societies. Um, everything was just weak, and so not only were the, the new converts falling inactive quickly, but the longtime members were falling inactive as well because the units were so feeble. Um, and so I'd heard that Elder Holland had closed over 20 stakes. Um, uh, and this maintained a rumor until um, just this year. Uh, my basement flooded. Um, I moved to Utah. My basement flooded one day. And we had some guys over to um, suck the water out of my basement. And it just so happened that the gentleman who came to remove the water from my basement was from Chile. And so I asked him, how's the church in Chile? And he got this really sad look on his face and he said, it's, it's really horrible. Elder Holland's now closed over 40 stakes in Chile. Uh, I don't know if that number's accurate, but that's what I was told. He said there were wards with as few as two to 10 members attending in an entire ward. And so he had to just collapse and collapse and collapse and collapse the wards and collapse the stakes to try and get a critical mass again. Um, and I and I thought about Elder Oaks in the Philippines, and I thought about, um, you know, the church missionary program as a whole, and I realized uh, that the church has suffered from uh, a baptismal program in many areas that focused on numbers, that focused on metrics, um, that focused on sales te techniques and tactics um, instead of true conversions. And that jibes now with my understanding that um, places like Chile and Mexico have done census, have done censuses. I don't know what the plural is for census. Um, but those censuses basically show a fraction of the number of self-reported Mormons that our church claims in each of those countries. And, um, and it jibes with the activity rates that I saw when I worked at church headquarters. 
And it made me realize that while we claim that there are 12 million Mormons in the church, that in reality, the number of active Mormons is much closer to around 5 million or 6 million at the most, um, if you count semi-actives. But there's a whole set of millions and millions of people that we keep on our rolls that don't consider themselves Mormons, but we continue to count them as such anyway. And um, it sort of made me look at the church and missions in a whole different light. Uh, it, to me, this doesn't prove that the church isn't true. This doesn't prove that the church is corrupt. Uh, it has nothing to do with any of that. It just shows how, how um, with the right emphasis on, on power and the right in, emphasis on authority um, and sort of a, a top-down, authoritative, ecclesiastical leadership structure, um, things can go awry, sometimes severely so. And so, uh, you know, I, I sort of take from my uh, experience all sort of lessons, all sorts of lessons. Um, never ignore how you feel in your conscience, even if your priesthood leaders seem to be indicating other things. Go with, you know, what we would call the Holy Ghost or your conscience. Um, avoid, uh, you know, what Elder Oaks referred to as priestcrafts, taking the honors of men and the mechanisms of corporate America and trying to apply them to the spiritual world. It just doesn't make sense. A couple of years back on a business trip, I ran into Elder Oaks in an, in an airport, dropped him a little note and uh, thanked him for his telephone call to me. And he wrote back to me a second letter, which basically said, your letter did a lot of good. And every time I go to missionaries throughout the world now, I tell them, uh, never set a goal uh, as a missionary on something that rests on someone else's free agency. In other words, to set a goal on a baptism is wrong because, uh, you can't control ultimately whether someone decides to get baptized or not, but you can set a goal on how hard you're going to work or how you're going to work or how much you're going to pray or how many hours or how many books you're going to deliver. Um, because that, those are things that are under your control. And most importantly, uh, the, the speech that Elder Oak sent me, um, after our conversation basically called these techniques priestcraft. And he said that any time that we try and apply sales techniques to the mission experience, we're engaging in what the Book of Mormon calls as evil and priestcraft. So um, uh, just to let you know, I remain an active Mormon to this day. I, uh, I teach elders quorum in, in my ward. Uh, all my children, you know, go to church and are active. I uh, also have a state calling. I'm, uh, I'm committed to the gospel, although my view of how things work in the church and um, how I interface with the church has been dramatically revised since my experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but at the same time, uh, uh, it was very painful. And I do hope that the church will learn its lesson. And, you know, my fondest wish is that in the MTC, you know, this story and other stories will be told to the elders and the, and the sister missionaries and that they'll be told, you know, there is a tendency in all missions to do these types of baptisms. And we want to categorically state up front that these, 
these practices are evil and wrong and you shouldn't do them. And until these issues are openly and publicly addressed directly, I fear that, that these practices will continue to rear their ugly heads um, in future missions with future missionaries. And you have to just wonder um, how it corrupts a missionary to get caught up in these types of uh, baptisms uh, as they then leave the mission and sort of serve or not serve in the church to, to think back on, on what types of missions they had and what the missions really meant to the people that were being served. Um, so that's my story. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to be putting copies of uh, my letter to Elder Oaks, his letters back to me, um, as well as some other information, maybe some of the uh, certificates and the newsletters that we received on my mission so that you can see that this stuff is for real. And most importantly, I'd like to invite you to send me your email at mormonstories at gmail.com to let me know how you liked uh, how you like this story. Um, and if you'd like to see podcasts like this continue, and most importantly, uh, whether you'd like to have your story told through Skype. Skype is spelled S-K-Y-P-E. You can go to skype.com to download uh, uh, the program. And computer-to-computer uh, -computer, uh, telephone calls are absolutely free. So I would welcome those of you to do that. And uh, I hope that you'll tune in to future Mormon Stories podcasts. I also have a goal to uh, produce Mormon Stories in video form to do documentaries on people like Leonard Arrington and T. Edgar Lyon and Lowell Benyon and Eugene England and to tell their stories so that their stories aren't lost. And current Mormons, I hope someday to be able to interview uh, Michael Quinn or Lavina Fielding Anderson or um, Jan Ships, any of the current Mormons, to have them tell their stories as well. Uh, because I feel like the more that these topics are openly discussed, the better off we'll all be. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Please, again, email me at mormonstories at gmail.com with your feedback um, and uh, with any interest you may have in participating in future Mormon stories. Thank you so much. Take care. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Goodbye. your hope, your heart's desire As a castle that you must keep all of its splendor, it's drafty with lonely This heart is too hard to heat But when I get lonely, now that's only a sign Some room is empty, but that room is there by design If I feel hollow, well that's just my proof That there's more for me to follow That's what the lonely is for Is it a curse or a blessing, this palace of promise, when the empty chill makes you weep, with only the thin fire of romance to warm?